sermon number 553. God, God, in the first Church of Bakersfield on November 15, 1970. The text 1 Corinthians 3, the ninth verse. For we are fellow workmen for God. This morning, I, as every Sunday, found myself walking down through the parking lot and seeing the yellow coat that dots the parking lots on rainy mornings. I am again reminded of how gratitude this entire congregation owes to that group of men who every Sunday morning report here shortly after 9 a.m. and are on duty in our parking lot until after the service of worship. You know, sometimes our congregation and guests get a little disturbed with these people because their job is rather difficult. They have hundreds of automobiles which they must get into the allotted space each Sunday. Many times our people have to park clear in the far area, and I know it's a long walk, and especially on a morning like this, but it's not their fault. This morning one of them was really on the job, and he found some automobile keys which one of you inadvertently dropped. They are keys to a General Motors automobile, and they may be procured in the church office immediately after worship. I just hope it's not one of you who has shown a little disgust for one of the parking lot men that has lost the keys. If so, you've learned a lesson in humility. Now I, all of you are reaching in your pocket or pocketbooks to see if you are the one that lost the keys. I would like, please, very much to read to you a rather lengthy portion of God's Word is found in the New Testament letter of Paul to the Christians at Corinth, third chapter, beginning to read the first verse. As a matter of fact, brothers, I could not talk to you as I talk to men who have the Spirit. I had to talk to you as men of this world, as children in the Christian faith, I had to feed you milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, because you still live as men of this world. When there is jealousy among you and you quarrel with one another, doesn't this prove that you are men of this world living by this world's standards? When one of you says, I am with Paul, and another, I am with Apollos, aren't you acting like worldly men? After all, who is Apollos? And who is Paul? We are simply God's servants by whom you were led to believe. Each one of us does the work the Lord gave him to do. I planted the seed, Apollos watered the plant, but it was God who made the plant grow. The one who plants and the one who waters really do not matter. It is God who matters, for he makes the plant grow. 
There is no difference between the man who plants and the man who waters. God will reward each one according to the work he has done. For we are partners working together for God, and you are God's field. You are also God's building. Using the gift that God gave me, I did the work of an expert builder and laid the foundation, and another is building upon it. But each one must be careful how he builds. For God has already placed Jesus Christ as the one and only foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. Some will use gold or silver or precious stones in building upon the foundation. Others will use wood or grass or straw. And the quality of each man's work will be seen when the day of Christ exposes it. For that day, fire will reveal every man's work. The fire will test it and show its real quality. If what a man built on the foundation survives the fire, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, then he will lose it. But he himself will be saved as if he had escaped through the fire. Surely you know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you. So if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you yourselves, you are his temple. Yes, little Johnny knew what Paul was trying to say. Paul would have liked it because he would have agreed with him. You remember Johnny, I told you about him on two other occasions. He's that little boy who one day came upon a vacant lot in the city in which he lived. He saw great potential in that lot even though it was covered with all types of rubbish and debris. He thought he could plant a garden there, so he took much time and with a lot of sweat and effort. He cleared the rubble from the lot. He spaded the ground, plowed straight furrows, planted good seed, and watered the plant. He worked hard, and he worked long, and, and he admired the work that he was able to do. And one day a very pious friend came along and said, Boy, Johnny, that certainly is a beautiful garden that you and God have. And Johnny, thinking perhaps God was getting too much credit and he not enough, replied, Yes, sir, we do have a nice garden, but you should have seen it when only God had it. You see, he caught the point that Paul's trying to make. Paul says, we are co-workers with God. We are partners with God. George Eliot caught it. Tis God that gives the skill, but not without men's hands. For even God could not make Antonio Stradivari's violins without Antonio. God needs us. Without God, we are nothing. But without us, God isn't too much. 
God can as little do without us as we without him. And though it sounds rather presumptuous for us to say, in the sight of God, if God's will is going to be done, if he is going to perfect some of these imperfections in earth, we've got to help him. And if we don't help him, then God can do very little about them. Now, this organization or corporation was founded not upon our ideas, but upon the principles of God. Personally, sometimes I think God made a mistake, but that is not for me to judge. God, in his infinite wisdom, somehow decided that to build this world, he needed the cooperation of men. So he chose not to make us as pawns in some chess set that he moves around as he pleases. But he gave us a free will, a free will that can respond within limitation, a free will that he hopes will look upon him as the senior partner of this building and construction firm, that will join with him, and which together with him will bring into this world the righteousness and the love that he intends it to have. So consequently, he made man important, maybe more important than we ought to be. But we didn't do this. It was God who made us this important. And when God wants anything done, he always does it, usually, by one way. He picks out a person or a group of people, and this is how he gets his work done. Suppose a bridge or a tunnel is to be built. It is man, and always has been, working in cooperation with God and his laws of nature that bring that thing into a reality. God placed in the hills of Greece great storehouses of marble, but it took man to build the Parthenon. Below these hills, these beautiful hills of Pennsylvania, are tons and tons of iron ore. But God never made an automobile. He never even made a safety pit. He waits for man to bring these things into actuality. God has no hands but our hands to do his work today. That's a reality. So you see, if things are going to be done, God must do them through us. He has no other way. Oh, he's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He can do anything he wants to do any time of the hour of the day. But he has chosen, you see, to do things through us. That's his will. So when we look around us and we see wars that do not cease, hunger that is not fed, racial hatred that doesn't seem to be getting any better. Whose fault is it? The senior member of the firm, God? Or the junior member of the firm? You. Me. 
I think we are rather incorrect when we try to put the blame on God. It's typical always to try and blame the president or the head. But a man, if he's going to be truthful with himself, knows that many things fail simply because he has not done his job. He has not fulfilled his responsibility. And why God does not and cannot get some of the things done here on earth that we would like to see done, it's not his fault. He wants to see them done, perfected, even more than do we. But the reason that God is sometimes kept waiting to fulfill his will is simply because some of us down here are not doing a very good job in cooperating with our partner. Why God is kept waiting? I'll tell you one reason why. It's because some of us just don't think. It's as simple as that. God, to be able to do his will, must have people who think. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those are the commands of Jesus. If God's will is to be done here on earth, we must have people who are thinking and meditating and concentrating upon the love of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And folks, we're not doing that. Sometimes in the early hours of the evening when I'm traveling to some engagement or out calling, I keep tuned to a local radio talk show which seems to be quite popular in the Pittsburgh area. And I listen. I've never picked up enough nerve yet to call. I threaten too many times. Sometimes the comments I think are quite good. And at other times, yeah. All I can find myself saying and thinking is no much wonder God's having such a hard time. Some of these ideas, all they can prove to me is that hot air does come out of a vacuum. <laughs> anybody, I don't care, I'm sorry folks, anybody who claims the way you get rid of a particular race of people, or some young, overly active, ambitious, completely wrong perhaps college students, is to line them up and use a machine gun on them. I'm sorry, that may express how you feel, that may give vent to your anger, this may give some relief to your frustrations, but that's not thinking. <laughs> Get as stubborn as you want, but that is not thinking. And no matter how pious or how right we may think we are, God cannot bring in the kingdom with that kind of thinking. You see, Jesus has always had trouble with people's thinking. There just seems to be something innate and truly human within us that makes us want to think other than he would have us to think.
Now, that's why Jesus told parables. He just didn't give those little stories for your children to learn in Sunday school or to give us something to talk about here on Sunday. He gave those to provoke people to think. When he told the story, you see, of the Good Samaritan, he was trying to get that young attorney who had come unto him to think about who his neighbor really was. In effect, what Jesus is saying in that parable is, don't ask me who your neighbor is. Think about it yourself. Do some real hard muscle work with your brain and find out for yourself who, your, who is your neighbor. I don't know how you get people to think, but without people thinking, God is kept waiting. You know, that's a very frightening thought to realize the opinions that you give about the world situation, the advice that you are giving to President Nixon as to how he should run this nation, the thinking you give behind the letters that you write to the editor, and the power that you give to the ballot in the voting box. All of that, you see, no matter how insignificant you might think, it is a revelation of your thinking. And that thought, this moment, is either helping or hindering the kingdom of God. And without people thinking about consequence, about what this action that I am contemplating today might lead to tomorrow. If you're not willing to think this way, then God has just kept waiting. And he waits for people who will think about what they are doing. We're willing to sit down and ask some very embarrassing but important questions. Is what I'm doing really important? See, because with, without thinking, God just can't bring in the kingdom. And God can't bring in the kingdom with people refuse to care. You see, when God made each one of us, he gave us a mind that is capable of thinking, but he also gave us a heart that is capable of feeling. And when we cannot feel, God can't do too much. You see, if, if you look at a picture of a little child in maybe some far off country or in a ghetto area, whose little belly is swollen because he hasn't had enough to eat. He has no home. His father and mother are dead. He has no knowledge. If you don't feel some pangs of sorrow for that little child, then, folks, your heart's not working as God would have it to work. If you see some of the flagrant injustices in our society being continuously perpetrated, 
And don't get upset. Your heart is not caring. If that senseless war where hundreds and thousands of innocent men and women are dying does not give you an empty pit of sickness in your stomach, then we don't care. You see, it's altogether possible to know about all of these atrocities that are happening within our society and in our life and not care. Just because you have a good mind and just because you can think and just because you can analyze, this doesn't necessarily mean that you care. The greatest thing that perhaps can be said about Jesus Christ other than his death and his resurrection and his ascension is the fact that when he saw people, ugly people, the Bible said he had compassion upon them. He cared for people and for situations. And even maybe sometimes he didn't do anything about it. It was not because he did not care. I don't know how you felt when you heard it on the radio. I didn't hear it until this morning about that accident, horrible accident last night in West Virginia where the whole football team and part of a student body was literally wiped out in an instant of a second. My stomach dropped two inches. And I'm proud of it. The worst sin in the world, says George Bernard Shaw, is not that we hate our fellow man, but that we are indifferent to him. And God just can't do things if people are not willing to care. And we keep him waiting. And he'll wait a long time, much longer than you and I can wait, when we do not give. When we do not give of our time, of our talents which he has given to us, of our money which he has given to us. Now I know you've been waiting for it. Here it is. I don't preach much on money. I've never decided whether that's a weakness or a strength. I'm not sure Jesus is real proud of me for this because he sure talked an awful lot about money, but folks, I don't. Because I believe in people. I know that in this church, through ten years of experience, that there are people who think. And that many of you out there care and because of it, you give. Time, talent. Right now, there are several hundred of people back behind this wall. Your children. And they're being taught by people. They're giving up their opportunity to do what you're doing now. Because they care. And that's one way that they can give. There are many in this church who give and who give liberally. 
and who give because they realize that they are co-workers with God. And I know that. And to them they need no sermon to try and encourage them to give more. Some of the rest of you don't do so well. But I don't think I can do much to change your pattern of giving if you don't already know that God is your partner and that God is waiting upon you and that there's certain things in this world that God can just not do unless you are willing to give of yourself your time, your talent, and your money, then my saying it all over again here isn't going to make one bit of difference. But folks, believe me, God's counting on us. And if we don't come through, the job's not going to be done. And God is going to be able next year to do nothing more than perhaps he's done about many of these problems that he's concerned about. He can only wait for somebody who is willing to think, to care, and to give. And if you happen to be one of the members of this church or friends of this congregation who help support its program, and you are going to give more to liquor, to your club, and to feed your dog than you do to the ongoing work of Christ and his church. You're not thinking. You're not caring. Because you're not giving. Remember Palm Sunday? That's the day that Christ rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. There's a little portion of that New Testament story which is told in the Synoptic Gospels, which I love. Jesus, to be able to ride triumphantly into Jerusalem, needed an animal. And remember, he sent two of his disciples into Jerusalem and saying, at a certain place you'll find a coat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anybody asks of you, what are you doing? You simply answer, the Lord has need of it and untie that coat and bring it here. And Luke tells us that when the two men went in, the two disciples into the, into the city to get the animal, as they were untying it, the owners, plural, the owners said, where are you taking that beast? The Lord hath need of it. And they gave it to the disciples. And Jesus Christ was able to ride triumphantly into Jerusalem because a man gave knowing that the Lord had need. I often wonder what would have happened if, if the owners of that coat had said no. There would not have been a Palm Sunday, you know. Or at least Jesus would have been delayed on coming triumphantly into Jerusalem. It's no different. Christ will come triumphantly into our lives, into this church, into this community, and into this world only when we know that the Lord has need of us. 
and we respond. Our Father and our God, forgive us when we get off the track, when we lose sight of what it is we're to do. Lord, help us to realize that in thy sight we are mighty important people. And help us also to see that without thee we are as nothing. But together with thee, we are the kingdom of God. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.